0: Welcome to Everything is Connected, where we explore the intersections between the world outside us and the worlds within us. I'm your host, Jonathan Blake, and I've been thinking a lot about writing as a creative act. I mean that literally, words create worlds. With my rabbi hat on, I'm thinking of the first chapter of the Bible or Torah, which depicts the creator God as making the world through the use of speech and language. And God said, let there be light and so forth. Or for my Christian friends, there's the opening of the Gospel of John in which the Word becomes flesh. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. For the Gospel of John, the story of Jesus begins not in a lowly little manger, but with a lowly little word. And so Jesus is really God's Word incarnate. The big three religious traditions here in the West, Judaism, Christianity, Islam, are self-consciously literary. I mean, you could even argue that the central icon of the biblical tradition are these two tablets of the law, the Ten Commandments, in which God's word is not made flesh in the Christian way of thinking, but it does turn from a spoken utterance into literally words carved in stone. I've invited a guest here today to help us think through the spiritual dimensions of writing, the way the written word sometimes helps us to bridge the distance between the world outside us and the life of the spirit that is the world within us. Michelle Lowe is an award-winning playwright, librettist, and lyricist, She just got back from the Sundance Institute Theater Lab, where she was artist-in-residence. For the last 15 years, Michelle's works have been produced on and off-Broadway across the country and in some of the world's most prestigious theaters and festivals. Michelle, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you, John. It's great to be here. And welcome back from Sundance. How was it? It was amazing, and it does fit into what we're talking about today. It was immensely spiritual. The area is just magnificent. There are mountains. There is this beautiful creek runoff from the glacier. There are waterfalls. And so it was a wonderful time for me not just to connect to the play I was working on, but it was a chance for me to just really unload everything about the New York life that I have to face every day. I did a great amount of writing. I treated myself to the start of a brand new play, which I did not anticipate doing. I met people from around the world who are theater makers. And so it really did connect me both to the land, to my heart, to my soul, and it was unforgettable.
0: It sounds like it fueled your creativity.
1: It did, in ways that I wasn't expecting.
0: Well, it actually ties into why we're here today, because I want to talk about creativity, literally creating stuff out of nothing. And especially, I've been thinking a lot about how writing is a creative act. You as a playwright are making worlds out of words. So I'm wondering, what worlds are you aiming to create with your writing?
1: It's interesting, at this point in my life, the world that I'm actually creating right now is a world from my past. And I'm looking back at certain events that have stayed with me in my DNA all these years later. I've never done that before. In some of the new work I'm doing, too, I'm looking at the future. Everything I do when I write is a means for me to connect. I connect to my soul. And I hope by connecting to my soul, I can bridge to an audience and somehow move them. It may sound very cliche, but it really is truly what drives me. And I think it's what drives my spirit, is this drive to connect, is this need to create a path to sort of get inside people and say, have you ever thought about this? Is, is this something that you are thinking about too? Because this is what I'm thinking about.
0: So since so much of your current work is drawing on your own past, could we talk about your spiritual journey and from the past to the present and the
1: important points along the way that have formed you? I was raised Jewish. I went to religious school, bat Mitzvah. I still remember my bat mitzvah. I remember the sense of, accomplishment after my bat mitzvah, sitting in the back of the car, as we drove to lunch thinking, wow, I did it, whoa. I was confirmed, I graduated, and then I went off to college. I went to services for the high holidays at my college, and then there was a period sort of I call the wilderness, where I was not going to temple very much, but that changed when I had uh, my daughter. And so I entered what I think is a different kind of, of spirituality, where I was teaching her about Judaism. And then she went through her education period, very much like mine, and then she was off to college. I don't consider myself an empty nester. I don't consider myself empty anything. But now I'm on another path, as I look into my Jewish identity and looking for that path out of the wilderness. What What is the new thing that is in store for me and my Jewish identity? And somehow I happened upon this fabulous new path, which is that I coach rabbis in their writing and delivering of their sermons. And so there's this new, amazing tract in my life where I am regularly meeting with rabbis, working with them on the content, the style. I'm learning so much about Judaism, but in a different way. It's very personal. It's very interactive. And I love it. really, really love it. I'm always surprised when I choose to write about being Jewish. And I have done that. And I love it. There was no accident, for example, that the first play I finished after giving birth to my daughter 20 years ago was a play about my Jewish identity. Recently, I wrote another monologue that is part of a show that's being done all over. And that also has to do with my Jewish identity. It's called Queen Esther. So at different points in my life, I have directly touched on my Jewish spirituality. But in the meantime, it has always fed me. I believe that. Uh, God is very close inside me, always. I think about it. Uh, I think about my relationship to God, to my religion. And here I am.
0: We're going to get to the coaching business in a few minutes. I do want to ask you about a play you wrote that came out in 2010. It's called Inanna, and it won the Francesca Primus Prize, which is considered one of the highest honors for a woman in theater. There's a theme in that play that I pick up about the dangers of religious extremism, uh, and it really caught my attention, especially given what's going on in the Middle East today and the way ISIS is rampaging against these shrines and artifacts and it has a destructive effect on arts and culture so could you give us a little background into the world
1: of Inanna and how these themes came to interest you? Well what's interesting is Inanna is also uh, at its very basic about stolen art and how I got interested in stolen art was because of my interest in stolen art during the holocaust and I researched that for about 10 years Hitler was amassing the world's biggest museum, and it was no accident that he was doing this. He knew that by taking these amazing paintings and photographs and sculptures, that having this museum would give him enormous power over the world. I was very interested in how this came together, and I was interested in how we went back in, and little by little over these decades have been trying to seek restitution, that that the owners of these paintings have been able to seek restitution for them. And I thought that was an amazing thing that was going on in the world, that all these years later, this was still going on. But I never found a, a, a place that I could use all this information I'd gathered. And then we invaded Iraq in 2003. There was quite a bit in the newspapers about what was lost when we moved in, particularly in the museum in Baghdad. And I was just incensed. I couldn't believe all of this had been looted, all of this had disappeared, all of these amazing cultural effects. And what's going on still with ISIS is they know, blowing up these amazing, amazing artifacts, it renders someone speechless to the point where they, they feel such a loss. I feel that loss when I read about ISIS blowing these things up. I feel the loss when I read about what happened during World War II. And so I decided I, I had to write about it. I had to write about our entrance into the war. And it was through this, through this stolen art, that I could find a voice. I followed everything there was about what went on during the looting in 2003. And I ended up meeting my hero, Donnie George before he died, actually. It was an amazing, amazing event in my life. And he was the the head of the National Museum in Baghdad, and I didn't get to meet him, and he did get to read my play. It was also amazing to do this play because I had a cast of Arab American actors in the room. And it was like a mini UN, dealing with all of these interesting, interesting men and women.
0: Now here we are seven years after Inanna, Do you feel that this is an environment in which artists can safely create, in which a writer can safely speak the kinds of truth that art is intended to speak, given what we know about what you've taught us about power?
1: I think that's a really good question. I think what's happening, though, right now is that it's a very good time for people to speak the truth because audiences, other artists are demanding the truth. There's a great, great delineation between fake and truth. And so those who are on the side of truth demand that it be as, I don't want to say perfect or distilled, but it's got to ring true. There's a great deal of a discussion right now on who is, quote unquote, allowed to write a certain story. What is the truth of the story and who gets to write it? I have mixed feelings about that. In my world... I would like to be able to write whatever story that I want to write. But what I'm learning from my friends is that who gets to help me write and produce that story, I write the story, but who gets to help me produce that story for the stage might be a little bit different than how I originally looked at it. So that if I'm going to write a story like Inanna now, back then it didn't honestly occur to me that I needed to have people who were Arab American on my creative team. It would now. I would absolutely insist on something like that. That's a big, big conversation that's happening in my world. I never want to think that I can't write a story that I'm passionate about, but I know that I will ask for assistance or production help in a different way than I did back
0: then. It would be the height of irony, I guess, to compose a story about cultural appropriation and be accused of cultural appropriation in the making of it.
1: Exactly. Which is the last thing I want.
0: Exactly. So Michelle, recently you've begun a new professional endeavor, which is to offer coaching in writing and speaking for spiritual leaders, rabbis and cantors and the like. I'm wondering how you got into that and how is it similar to or different from your work with other writers, playwrights, artists like yourself?
1: I actually think it's some of the most meaningful work that I do. Why? I have such respect for our clergy. There is a connection between rabbis and artists. I think artists and rabbis are so, so similar. I think that we all need a big dose of confidence. I think that's how I can also be helpful is is being a little bit of a cheerleader. You know, I'm a rah-rah. If you want to do something, I can help you do that because I can show you how to believe in yourself. What goes on in a rabbi's head or a cantor's head is so similar to what goes on in an artist's head. They, too, are seeking connection. They, too, are looking for the words. They're looking for something that is going to link them and move people. One of the things I always talk to my rabbis and cantors about is, at the end of your sermon, Please tell me what you want me to be thinking as I leave. One of the most common questions I get as a writer is, when people see your play, what is it that you want them to go out thinking about? And I used to really think, Oi, that question, I don't know if I like that question. The truth is, they're absolutely right to ask me that question. I won't talk about theme. I won't talk about what my goal was or is for a play. But I will talk about what's on my mind. And if I can open a person's mind up about how people in Iraq are similar to people in America, then I've done my job. I'll talk about that. And that's my goal. If I can help a rabbi or a cantor connect to their congregation or connect to a group of people and show that person, gee, maybe think about this as I'm sitting there for high holidays. I'm also the Jew in the pew. So I come at this from two angles. One is a writer and one is a congregant.
0: Sermons are pretty much always on my mind, especially as the high holidays are close at the time of this recording. And before we run out of time for today, Michelle, I want to go a little further for another minute and ask you, what do you think we need to hear from our spiritual leaders today?
1: When I go to a high holiday service or Friday night service, I want to go out thinking about something I haven't been thinking about when I came in. I challenge my my clergy, tell me something, that you want me to be thinking about? And in fact, if it's the high holidays, I want to be able to think about this for a year. What is the what is that one thing? I'll even challenge my, my rabbis and cantors. What is it that you want to hang your rabbinate on for the next year? What is that thread that you're going to take through for the next 12 months? Because I just heard from one of my rabbis recently, a congregant had come up to them in March and said, can I have a copy of the Sermon that you gave in the high holiday services, you know, last year. I love that idea. I love that people are still talking about that. I think it's a tough time to be a Jew anywhere in the world. I think it's a tough time for Jews in America because we are at risk. I would love to hear about anti Semitism in the United States, around the world. I think it would be brave for a rabbi to address anti-Semitism during the high holidays, I think it's necessary. It is the elephant in the room. And why not just expose it? Why not talk about it? Why not get other people talking about it? That's what the best high holiday sermons do, is get people thinking and get people talking. And the best ones of all get me thinking and talking for a year so that we keep coming back to those themes. What are you hanging your rabbinate on this year? If it's anti-Semitism, you can do that. You can get people thinking about it, talking about it, addressing it. For that long and beyond, please do that. I think it can be very powerful for people to hear what they are most afraid of. Imagine if we can address anti-Semitism. We can then address racism. We can address the fear around refugees in our communities. Think about a discussion about anti-Semitism as a jumping off point for addressing the very cold political climate for immigrants, people of color, the LGBTQ community. What a rabbi can start in terms of conversation if only a rabbi could start or Cantor could start talking about anti-Semitism.
0: I'm taking mental notes so I know what to write about. Michelle, it has been an absolute pleasure having you on the show. I can't wait to hear more about your upcoming work, both in theater and in coaching, and I'm going to wish you all the success in the world.
1: Thank you, John. It's been great to speak with you.
0: You can pick up the next episode of Everything is Connected wherever you download your favorite podcasts. Also, check out our website, connectedcast.com. For more information about today's guest and upcoming episodes, And be sure to subscribe so you'll always be informed about updates. Everything is Connected is produced by Justine Dom. Our title music is Down in the River to Pray as recorded by the Pete Malinverney Trio. Stay connected, everyone.